This is Indian Noir, India's number one horror, crime and dark fantasy storytelling podcast. Dev Asur, Season 1, Episode 6 Indrapuri, the capital city of the Devas, on the planet Swargaloka. It was an agglomeration of golden structures and luscious green and colourful gardens. The sparkling blue waters of Akashiganga snaked through the heart of the city. At the centre of the city sat Indra's Byzantine palace, with its stunning dome replete with murals of the Master of Storms and Indrani leading Deva hosts into battle. The palace contained marble columns, gold-coffered vaulted ceilings, cloistered passages looking onto exquisite pools with multicoloured fish, grand staircases, and spacious chambers showcasing furniture and decorations that screamed of opulence. The palace grounds were dotted with statues of Indra in heroic poses, holding his sword Vajra in one hand and his mighty bow Bhaudhara in another. Outside the palace walls, high rises gleaming with aureate glass facades rose everywhere. Crowds milled in boulevards and squares decorated with the most exquisite of sculptures, celebrating the naked muscular forms of Gantharvas, Yakshas and Apsaras. The business and commercial hub featured stunning green architecture that merged ornate edifices with towering vertical forests. Paved roads from the central districts journeyed to the west towards residential precincts featuring white buildings with golden roofs, which then gave way to hives of industry. They were soldiers and tall humanoid aliens who possessed pointy ears and blue eyes called Adhimanavas thronged the business and residential districts. To the east were the gothic houses of learning and martial training. Large stained glass windows, pointed arches, ribbed vaults, flying buttresses and ornate statuaries distinguished these buildings in the landscape of excess. The black and gold facade of the School of Majors for the Gantharvas sat right next to the ivory and gold-tinged cathedral-like Deva Military Academy, which is where every single Deva soldier graduated from. 
a vast sprawl of greenery surrounding the academy was hosting picnics. And there were no doubt conversations at these gatherings about the blocky blue and gold buildings of the Yaksha Heavy Weapons Institute located across the river. It was also known as the place where they blew up random stuff or destruction factory. The river wound through these military colleges and journeyed south to a forested area from where rose a stunning geodesic dome covered with shimmering triangular golden panels. Belvir was bathing in the waters of Akashganga, not too far from this holy structure. Shreya was sitting on a wooden bench on the banks of the river, kissing her Apsara lover, Akanksha. It was a stunning summer day, full of promise, yet an undercurrent of tension threatened to ruin its perfection. Shreya would look at Belvir occasionally, as if to suggest, get out of the water so we can commiserate with each other about our misery. Even Akanksha could tell that Shreya's mind was wandering. Finally, Belvir's naked muscular form emerged from the azure waters. He picked up his silk dhoti which was spread on pristine grass and wrapped it around his waist. Shreya immediately disengaged from Akanksha and said to her, I will meet you at the academy gardens in a few hours with a picnic basket. But you said you will spend the entire day with me, Akanksha complained. I just need to get on top of a few things at work today, and then I'm all yours, Shreya said. Akanksha frowned and slapped Shreya on her muscular right shoulder. Sure, because work will do a better job of going down on you than I will. Shreya grinned and kissed her before jumping off the bench and rushing after Belvir. He was strolling nonchalantly while wiping his body dry with a shawl. Having known Belvir for ages, Shreya knew that when he played too cool, it meant he was anxious as hell. Have you heard anything? Shreya asked as they walked along the tree-lined, cobblestoned pathway. No, but I look forward to getting an update from Senathikari, Belvir said. Where did he want us to meet him? Shreya asked. In front of Mark Kalpagar's shrine, Belvir said, pointing to the ornate temple in front of the giant dome. A thousand golden lamps adorned the two front sections, the Artha Mandapa and Mandapa of the shrine. The Garbhagriha, or the inner sanctum, which housed a stunning stone sculpture of a tree, representing Ma Kalpaka, was dark. But the lights from the many lamps limbed it with an ethereal glow that added to its immense beauty. The Shikara, or the roof of the sanctum, featured carvings from the creation myth. The tale of the celestial being Parampurusha, who immolated himself to gift life to the universe. Shreya and Bilvir bowed and prayed to the reigning deity, along with a throng of other devotees. It's been a while since I've seen Ma, Shreya said as they exited the temple and prepared to enter the dome that housed the actual tree. 
Belvir nodded. It's always good to come back and see mother. An arch depicting the great prophecy marked the imposing entrance to the dome. It featured a giant Vyali, a dragon entwined in flaming tree branches. It was prophesied that the universe would end the day Sarabeshwara, the king of Vyali's, destroyed Ma Kalpaka. Underneath the grand arch stood a band of Yakshagans in heavy armor decorated with floral symbols. They wore distinctively tall, pointed helmets that ended in a series of jeweled spires. They held giant halberds whose blades loomed threateningly over the visitors. So tight was the security in the dome, Shreya and Belvir had to clear five such checkpoints before entering a lush tropical forest, complete with several waterfalls thundering down from the heights. Stunning butterflies flitted over floral carpets. Trees that almost touched the roof of the triangular panels above housed colourful singing birds. The scale of the biodome beggared belief. At the very centre of this green paradise was Mark Alpaca, a giant tree covered in lush foliage that betrayed its age. It was as old as time itself and it was mother to all devas. Celestial beings like Devas, Asuras and Dhanavas were not created like humans and other alien species. They were crafted from the elements in sacred fertile natural formations called Garbhagas. The Devas were the children of Makalpaka. Asuras were conjured from the lava fields in the shadows of the mighty volcano Dandaga. Dhanavas were birthed in the swamp fields of Pulinda. Shreya and Belvir joined their hands in a respectful pranam once they reached the cordoned off, heavily guarded section where their birth mother was situated. Ma Kalpaka thrived in a shimmering blue pond that gave off an ethereal glow. Attendants wearing full-length gold cloaks their faces covered in a pearl-coloured lace veil, walked around with wicker baskets, pruning and maintaining the tree. The tree trunk featured a fleshy yoni, which birthed tiny squirming babies nestled in a membraneous placenta. A long queue of specialist attendants received these holy gifts in silk blankets and took them to the nursery for further care. Sometimes mother created Gantharvas, at other times Apsaras or Yakshas. On rare occasions, a Mahadeva like Indra was born, their superior physical strength and psychic abilities distinguishing them from the other Devas. I never tire of this sight, Shreya said, looking at the attendants lovingly cradling the restless bundles of joy. Me neither. It fills me with awe and great love for our people, Belvir said. A sadness had crept into Shreya's voice when she spoke next. Life birthed in this manner, nurtured and brought up in loving nurseries, 
strengthened in the halls of our military academies, end up in lonely graveyards in some forsaken planet somewhere. How we fall from grace, Shreya said. Belvir squeezed Shreya's shoulder and said, It's time to meet the commander. Tejas had just finished praying at Makalpaka's shrine when Bilvir and Shreya approached him. They saluted him. At ease, Sinanaik and Sinanaika. I hope you are well rested, Tejas said. It was odd seeing Tejas in his uniform without the staff. It is a shame your Marathaka was destroyed, Sinanathikari, Shreya said. As luck would have it, Tejas said pulling out his long sword from the scabbard on his back. It now featured a Marathaka gem on its rain guard. My staff was decimated, but I found the stone in the ruins of the portal engine. I brought it back home, and a brother maidsmith was able to attach it to my sword. With regular practice, I should now be able to use the sword for combat, and also channel the energy of the gem to perform magical attacks. I am truly delighted, Senathigari, Bilvir said with a smile. Thank you, colleagues. Now, how are the fresh recruits to the Shaudi company coming along? Tejas inquired. Bilvir and I handpicked the best of the best from the academy. We have assigned them to Vanguard Special Forces instructors, who are drilling them in our ethos, Shreya said. And what would that ethos be? Tejas asked with a smile. To crash headfirst into danger with little care for our lives or our limbs. Bilvir chuckled. <laughs> Tejas and Shreya joined in on the laughter. Shreya turned serious and said, Our selection will make you proud. This I can guarantee. They are soldiers worthy enough to walk in the shadows of our company banner. I am saddened to see the churn over the last few years, but I have never doubted the uncanny ability both of you possess to recruit the best soldiers into our company. We are only as good as our people, Tejas said proudly. Tejas started walking down the tree-lined path towards the Deva Military Academy. His forehead creased as he said, Indrani has been furious at every single meeting we have had so far, and this afternoon she will hand down her decision on our next steps. So I would say it's a good time for you to go back to the barracks and prepare for departure. Shreya and Bilvir nodded, stood at attention, and saluted him. Just as Tejas returned his salute, a sonic boom thundered above them. They looked up to see red-winged Gantharvas from the administrative apparatus of the Devas, the Narada Conclave, streaking through the skies. They were responsible for governing the far-flung planets under the rule of Devas and maintaining communication channels. The emissaries were heading in the direction of the palace. From their stunning cloaks decorated with badges and parchments containing oaths of office, it was evident that they were high-ranking officials. Clearly, 
information or assets of great value had been picked up at one of the listening posts that required the immediate consideration of the royals. That can't be good, Shreya said. No, Teja said, and I'm sure I will hear all about it at this afternoon's meeting. Indrani was shaking with anger as she addressed Deva commanders including Tejas in the war room, which was located deep in the bowels of the royal palace. Unlike the rest of the palace, the room was austere in appearance, with rock-textured walls and ceilings. Braziers nestled inside glass shades projected from the walls which also featured stunning territorial maps that defined sectors in space belonging to Devas and their enemies. In the center of the chamber was a giant round table. A crystal ball, five feet tall and similarly wide, rested in a golden ball with a thick sloping lip on top of the table. First you lose my husband's knees, Indrani said to her officers. She then pointed to the severed head sitting on a tray on a plinth in a far corner of the room and said, Then this commander goes and gets himself and his entire company killed on Vanamal. What kind of incompetence are we breeding in the military academy these days? Indrani noted that she had upset her staff with that comment. Strike that from the notes, she said to the scribe, taking the meeting minutes on a parchment. By this stage, the scribe had forgotten how many lines he had redacted for the Mahasena Adhikari of the Deva forces. I'm sorry. I'm just upset that we haven't found Indrasena after all these days. Indrani placed a hand on her forehead as she walked around the table. She was in her late forties and sported the figure of a woman who enjoyed the rough and tumble of the martial arts training grounds at the Deva Military Academy. Dark-skinned and gifted with luscious lips, big raven black eyes and stunning long wavy hair, she had an air of supreme confidence about her. But it was her fierce gaze and raging temper which defined her reputation among the masses. If you get to know her a bit better, you will realize that she has a tender heart. Indra used to say about her to his commanders. Needless to say, the officers were not willing to test this theory. She was dressed in a ceremonial brown tunic with a wine-red cloak and golden thunderbolt trimmings. Her leather high heels with golden soles were the same color as her tunic. What do you think the message means? Indrani asked. She was of course referring to the words printed on the parchment stuffed inside Veeraputra's mouth. It read, We do unto you what you do unto us. Anyone? Indrani asked. The usual grandstanding, I would say, to remind us they remember the defeats they suffered at our hands, and to let us know that retribution is just round the corner. Here's a teaser of what is coming, kind of threat. A Yaksha commander piped up. The last thing I want to deal with at this point is their childish call-outs for war, Indrani said. 
An attendant, who had failed to read the room, extended a tray of Madhira towards Indrani at that exact moment. Indrani grabbed a full glass and threw its contents at a map on the wall, and the liquid stained the drawings red. Indrani pursed her lips in anger as she studied the splatter. That's better. It now best represents the blood we have shed to maintain peace in those sectors. The commanders, including Tejas, squirmed uncomfortably. Makalpaka can't keep up with the pace at which we are losing well-trained soldiers, an extremely upset Indrani said. These days, the Devas were dying young, at faster rates, thanks to Indra's wars of attrition. Indrani's desire for a brutal final solution to eradicate their opponents in one fell swoop was in direct conflict with Indra's desire to maintain peace through displays of combat superiority and the slow and steady dismantling of the enemy's military strength. It was a clash of ideologies, a decisive act of butchery versus a long drawn-out strategy to exhaust the enemy's will and resolve. This difference in opinion between husband and wife was well known, even outside the halls of the palace. We cannot afford to indulge in any diversions at Vanamal at this stage, an older Gandharva commander said. No sooner had he uttered these words than a distinguished voice interrupted him. Hold that thought. Jivaka, a Gandharva, and the arch Gurunathan of the mage school entered the command room, resplendent in a flowing black robe covered in golden illustrations of mandalas and magical scriptures. He held a teal scepter covered in golden bands and gems. The elderly man bowed to Indrani and pulled out a parchment from a leather tube. My queen, a further examination of the psychic contrails of Indrasena's teleportation has placed her at Vanamal. We were lucky the Danavas used their primitive portal engines to do the deed. It left behind a strong trace that our advanced psychoscopes at the school were able to track. There was shocked silence in the room as everyone stared at the Arch-Gurunathan, a bearded man in his late eighties. He pointed his scepter at the crystal ball on the round table. The green and blue gases within swirled as if a mini-tornado had been unleashed inside the structure. It formed the shape of the green forest planet Vanamal. A circular spot glowed at the heart of one of its biggest continents. The trail seems to end somewhere near this Asura Keep, Jivaka said. The phantasmagoric image zoomed through the clouds to the continent level, then even further down to reveal a black compound peering out from the foliage. A secret base. If it weren't for the psychic trails, we would have never known. One commander remarked, No matter which celestial controlled a said planet, it was not unusual for their enemies to infiltrate and set up secret bases in its remote corners. So there is a link. Good. 
Thank you for your investigations, Indrani said, nodding at the elderly mage. The arch Gurunathan bowed to her. It is my pleasure and duty to serve you, my queen. Sena Adhikari Tejas, Indrani said, looking at his stoic form. I want you to take an exploratory force to Vanamal immediately and investigate. Additional forces and siege machines will follow in a short while. I am hesitant to commit a large deployment in case there are fresh developments in our search for beloved Inthrasena. Tejas bowed and said, Shaudi companies replenished and ready to follow your directions. And I am delighted you thought me capable of commanding this mission. Indrani smiled for the first time and said, Your company's accomplishments have helped you win this role. This comment bristled the other Deva commanders, who were jealous of Shaudi company's accomplishments. They seethed at the trust Indrani was placing on Tejas to lead the mission. One of the jealous Gantharva commanders chimed in. Where is Lord Indra? Should we not inquire if he wishes to lead the mission, given his niece's life is at stake? Better still, if the Lord of Storms is engaged in some greater task, can I recommend that you, my queen, the Mahasena Adhikari of our forces, lead our hosts into glorious battle on Vanamal? Indrani fixed the commander who had spoken with a death stare. The logic of this suggestion did not sit well with her. She did not want to overextend her resources in case this was an elaborate trap. She also believed in Tejas's abilities as a military commander. But she regretted expressing anger towards him and the other officers. The ire that had plagued her for weeks was in fact caused by and reserved for her husband. Indra hadn't learned of the misfortune that befell his niece because he was missing again. Indra had lost interest in his lordship, in her. He had been undertaking visits to secretive locations for extended periods of time in the decades since the Kritika sector campaigns. She was certain it was not another woman that had taken his fancy. No, it was something else, and it had taken her a while to gauge his intentions. Indra's mind was beholden to ambitions of being elevated to a greater personage, to become a god in his own right. She didn't know what to make of her husband's foolish ambitions, and he wouldn't give in to her questioning, no matter how hard she tried. They had had several rows over this matter in the last few years, and they ended in tears and disappointment about the state of their relationship. Most disappointingly though, while Indra indulged in these flights of fancy, the burden of fighting his wars fell on Indrani, and she had to do it with her hands tied behind her back. It was wearing her patience down with each passing day. Her military commander mother had raised Indrani, an Apsara by birth, to work towards establishing the unquestionable supremacy of the Deva Empire 
not to indulge in the whims of a man who was satisfied with putting out spot fires to maintain appearances. If it was up to her, she would have launched a crusade to exterminate Asuras and Danavas. Presently, another commander who took courage from his colleague's query interrupted her reverie and asked, Where is the Lord of Storms? Indrani walked towards one of the maps on the wall, which depicted the region of space just north of the Kritika sector, and muttered softly, Where are you, husband? <laughs>